Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. John Johnson, a black poet and playwright, was in his late 30s when he discovered blood in his stool. He was also having stomach issues, and he wasn't eating all that much. John says he's usually skeptical when it comes to seeing doctors and toward medical institutions as a whole, but he got a colonoscopy. You know, they put you to sleep for a colonoscopy, and I remember waking up in the recovery room, And I could tell whoever the attendee was, he was like, Mr. Johnson, are you coherent? And I was like, yes, I'm coherent. He was like, well, I'll come back when you're coherent. I was like, "Uh uh-oh. Like, the way he said it, I was like, oh, he has some news that, um, you know, might not be good. John was diagnosed with stage 3 colorectal cancer. It had spread into some of his lymph nodes. But still, he wasn't sure if he wanted to pursue treatment. I had many different thoughts in my mind. One was just like, you know, becoming a vegetarian and drinking apple cider vinegar. I initially went into kind of like my homeopathic kind of ways of just survival outside of um, institutions. But meeting the specialist who was going to be in charge of his treatment changed his mind. I met Dr. Marie Borum at um, George Washington Hospital. She's a black gastroenterologist, and I'm very grateful. I feel like she's my angel on earth. And Dr. Borum, she was uh, very much like, we're going to get through this. I shared that I have two young children, and she shared that she had two young boys, and, you know, that that family connection. And and she also shared the story of of black men coming in and getting colonoscopies and finding out bad news and then going away on their own experimental ways of healing themselves and then coming back later on with things that progress and they can't, you know, they can't save them. So she wanted to make sure that I, I followed through. And she kept checking in with him. She called me on her vacation one day. It was like, Mr. Johnson, I just want to make sure you're being compliant. John remembers bumping into her a few blocks away from the hospital after having an MRI. She's like, hey, Mr. Johnson, what's going on? I was like, oh, she was like, what did the results say? I'm like, ma'am, I just came out of this MRI. Like, I have no idea. She grabbed my hand. We walked into the hospital, past security and everything. And she pulled up my results and said that, you know, that nothing has spread to my liver. And that's a good sign. And just, you know, you need to just make sure you continue the treatment plan and you may have a positive outcome. John made it through two surgeries, chemo and radiation. I feel like Dr. Boren was a family member or my aunt. And I would listen to her because I trust my aunts and my family members as opposed to just trusting a generic physician. Meeting the right doctor at the right time made all the difference for John. But so many things can get in the way of healthcare and treatment, of catching issues before it's too late. Distrust is a big one, but also lack of access to care, especially preventative care, and of course, insurance woes and medical bills. On this episode, we'll explore barriers to care, and we'll look at solutions and interventions that could break down some of those barriers. Barriers. 
Let's start with preventative care. More than 100,000 people in the United States will have been diagnosed with colon cancer this year. This disease is very treatable and curable when it's caught early. The problem is not everybody gets screened starting at the recommended age of 45 years old. Colonoscopy is the gold standard test to detect early signs of cancer, but it's invasive. It's a multi-step procedure. That's why doctors in Philadelphia are focusing their efforts on expanding access to a screening that's easier to complete. Nicole Leonard has more. Kimberly McNeil says there were signs for years that something was wrong with her grandmother's health. She would walk around and and she had a stomach that protruded almost like as if she was pregnant, but nobody knew why. She remembers that her grandmother, Sammy Lee Brewer, didn't eat very much. She didn't explain that to anyone and she didn't really ask any questions. And because she didn't complain, we didn't ask questions either. It's only in retrospect that Kimberly can recognize the symptoms for what they were, colorectal cancer. She was already in stage four. It had been going on for quite some time, and she just didn't realize that that's what she had. Sammy was in her 80s and had never had a colonoscopy. In fact, Kimberly says it was rare for her grandmother to visit any kind of health care provider. She was too busy raising a family and working long hours as a live-in housemaid in Philadelphia. And she never really made time for her health. And even when she retired, I think because she just didn't really feel sick, she was one of those people that didn't go to the doctors if she didn't feel well. She just kind of grinned and bared it and just kind of pushed through. But even for people who go to the doctor's office more regularly, a colonoscopy can be a lot. It's an outpatient procedure typically done in a surgical suite or at a hospital. The night before, you have to drink a concoction that helps clear out the bowel. So that means hours of running back and forth to the bathroom. During the actual procedure, which involves a camera traveling up and through your colon looking for polyps and tumors, patients are sedated, so they'll need somebody to take them home afterwards. All of this means to get a colonoscopy, people need time, transportation, a job with paid time off, and health insurance. Even then, Kimberly says that's only half the battle. Then it's the fear of doing it. You know, there's a general fear about what that's like. She says that can be especially true for people who've suffered harm and racial discrimination when seeking health care services. Colorectal cancer disproportionately affects Black people in the United States. They are about 20 percent more likely to get the disease and 40 percent more likely to die from it than most other racial groups. Screening rates among Black, Hispanic, and Asian people have gone up over time, but still remain lower when compared to white people. To make screenings more accessible, physicians at Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia are turning to a simpler, quicker method, stool-based take-home tests. In the check-in area at the Temple Digestive Disease Center, people are sitting in plastic chairs waiting for their names to be called. Some of them are here for colonoscopies. So we're going to have you in room three. We're in one of the surgical rooms. At the center is a hospital bed. A big monitor hangs down from the ceiling. This is where gastroenterologist Jessica Briscoe looks at video of a patient's internal organs as she guides a scope through the colon. 
but by the time some of her patients make it here, they're already showing signs of advanced disease. Jessica says this is where fecal immunochemical tests, FIT for short, can help make a difference. This program is used to touch the entire community, and I think that that's what it's, it's going to do. So FIT testing, colonoscopy, the best screening test is the one that gets done, and that's what we're trying to do. These are easy-to-use test kits that people can take home and perform themselves on their own time. Patients collect a tiny stool sample and then mail it off to a laboratory for testing. Some fit kits even provide rapid response immediate results at home. Internal medicine chief resident Rashab Khatri says it's an alternative screening option for patients with a low risk of colon cancer, meaning they don't have a family history of the disease or active symptoms. Research shows that these take-home kits are effective in detecting signs of cancer, even at early stages. It really eliminates all the steps of, you know, having to come in, taking a day off of work, drinking the prep that can be cumbersome, and it really puts every, every patient on a fast track to prevention. The take-home stool-based test kits each cost about $24 commercially after insurance and discounts. Internist Claire Robb says that makes it a cost-effective option for health systems to buy and distribute on a large scale. They have distributed between 500 and 600 free kits so far. There is no real rule that says they, we can't hand out fit tests in the lobby and we can't hand out fit tests in our subspecialty clinics. And there's really no reason we can't hand it out to our inpatients. Claire says that's the real game changer, creating access to colorectal cancer screening in places where it didn't exist before. It's this idea that you don't have to fit in the lines. You don't have to have an established primary care provider to have access to this. And that's, I think, the single greatest thing that will lower the access bar for for the population. To ensure that people complete the tests, health navigators follow up with patients by phone, multiple times if necessary. They ask if tests have been completed, answer any questions, and confirm and record the results. When someone gets a positive stool reading, they get scheduled for a traditional colonoscopy as soon as possible. So if our average colonoscopy time, you know, is a few months now, uh, we have been able to get all of those patients either to Dr. Briscoe right away or straight to colonoscopy within two weeks. So they're really triaged. They get to the top of the list because, you know, they're sicker and that's how we how we do it. Kimberly McNeil wonders if things would have turned out differently for her grandmother, if she had access to a stool-based test kit, or if she got a colonoscopy earlier in life. When Sammy Brewer received her late-stage diagnosis and considered a long road of surgery and chemotherapy, Kimberly says she decided against treatment. Sammy died at 87 years old in Camden, New Jersey. Kimberly says her grandmother's case led her family to prioritize preventative health care, especially screening for colon cancer. When I turned 45, I literally had an appointment for my colonoscopy two months later. Like it was very, very important to me that I was a walking, living example for what for, for what I talk about. After a career as a social worker, Kimberly now works for the National Colorectal Cancer Alliance. For The Pulse, I'm Nicole Leonard. We're talking about barriers to healthcare. 
Screenings are a big part of preventative health care. Getting patients to cooperate is one challenge, but getting the medical profession to accept a new screening into practice is another. I'm sure you've had your vision checked at some point, maybe your hearing, but smell tends to be a sense we neglect, one that perhaps we don't appreciate until it diminishes or disappears. During the pandemic, millions of people experienced smell loss when they had COVID-19. For some, that loss was permanent. But many experts believe that smell loss could be a warning sign for other illnesses, and they advocate for regular screenings. Nicole Curry recently attended a conference where smell experts were making that case. Smell and taste testing for all. The slogan is printed on a brightly colored poster board. It's the first thing I see when I walk into the conference where about 50 researchers, physicians, and patients have come together. Patients like Katie Boateng. Katie noticed a loss of smell in 2009 when she was eating a bowl of cereal at her kitchen table. And I was sitting there having my breakfast, and one of my roommates started spraying cleaning bleach spray on the table. And I thought, hey, like, why are you doing that? But then Katie noticed something even more concerning. Wait a second, I actually don't smell that. And that's when I started to realize that maybe I hadn't had a sense of smell for a while. Alarmed, Katie ran around the apartment, looking for things that usually give off a strong scent. Sniffing the garbage can, opening cupboards, trying to smell things in the pantry, opening up gross old shared apartment Tupperwares, and not getting anything. And so that's the day that I realized that I couldn't smell anymore. Katie learned that she had anosmia, smell loss. She thinks it started after she had a cold. Soon, she began to experience side effects. She was anxious. She constantly worried about having body odor and took multiple showers a day. She threw away leftovers out of fear because one time she got very sick from eating food that had gone bad. Katie also gained 20 pounds in one year. 2009 is actually the heaviest I've ever weighed. And so I know that it had a huge effect on my diet because I was eating a lot of fast food. That's because food no longer tasted the same. She could only recognize the most basic tastes, like salty, sweet, and bitter. All the nuance was gone. That's because our impression of flavor depends on taste and aroma. So in a way, Katie was looking for that full and embodied flavor in food. Chasing the sensation of like fat, salt, and trying to get something from my food. Even after seeing a trail of doctors, her sense of smell hasn't returned. But Katie has learned to deal with her anxiety around this. Katie's story paints a picture of what it's like to lose a sense that some people take for granted and the problems that follow. But sometimes instead of smell loss leading to anxiety or poor diet, Physicians and researchers say that smell loss can be an early warning sign that something is wrong. I'm thinking of a smell test more like a thermometer. A thermometer is used to detect if you have changes in temperature. And if you have a fever, you know that there is something wrong, but you don't have a specific diagnostic label connected to it. This is Valentina Parma. She's a psychologist and the assistant director of the Monell Chemical Census Center. Smell loss is a sentinel of many other different pathologies. 
from mental health, nutritional health, brain health, that there's a broad spectrum of disorders that connect with it. Issues like Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, traumatic brain injury, and Parkinson's disease. Over 90% of people that have early stage Parkinson's disease have demonstrable loss, but around 20-25% are only aware of it. That's Richard Dottie. He's the director of the Smell and Taste Center at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. People who are diagnosed with Parkinson's disease report loss of smell up to 10 years before their diagnosis and before physical symptoms manifest. Richard argues that if physicians were to catch smell loss early through screening, patients would be more likely to benefit from early intervention treatments if they show to have a degenerative illness like Parkinson's. Richard says testing people's sense of smell could also prevent safety hazards, especially since research literature shows that a quarter of people who have a diminished sense of smell are not even aware of it. A person who has lost smell needs to be aware of spoiled food, of dangerous environments, of fire, and they need to take special precautions. And indeed, a number of people die in accidental with gas poisonings because they can't smell. And in the elderly, a disproportionate number die in accidental gas poisoning as well. So there are reasons to know, to be, to be aware of how much function you have. But Valentina says barriers get in the way of routine smell testing. Money, time, and awareness. The first two barriers sort of work together because time is money. In terms of the process, Valentina says fitting smell tests into a doctor's appointment is a challenge. The test can take up to 12 minutes to complete. When you talk to clinicians, primary care providers, even specialized clinicians like ear, nose, and throat specialists, they don't have the time to add extra tests. But even if a doctor takes the time to administer the test, there is no real financial incentive to use it, which brings us to the second barrier, money. In many cases, smell tests are not reimbursed by health insurance. Most people who are offering the smell tests don't even put in the code for administering and evaluating the smell test because the likelihood of it getting reimbursed is so low. This is Jeb Justice. He's an ear, nose, and throat doctor and the co-director at the University of Florida Clinic for Smell and Taste Disorders. He says his clinic just pays for the test. We eat the costs. You know, it's not like 100 bucks a test. I think the tests are like $40 a piece. But, you know, if you add up seeing hundreds of, of patients and hundreds of those tests over the, the course of the year, you know, it adds up uh, over time. The third hurdle is awareness. Smell tends to be a neglected sense that we consider less important until it's compromised or gone. COVID-19 brought some awareness to smell loss and how little health professionals know about the olfactory system. But still, people like Richard Dottie, who have been in the field for decades, are not getting their hopes up just yet. I think it's going to be a long haul, frankly. And the more that representatives of Congress or senators and others can be informed of the, the problems that are associated with these disorders, with smell and taste problems, and that There really needs to be reimbursement. There needs to be interest. That story was reported by Nicole Curry. 
coming up when important medical details get lost in translation. Here I was, like this 15-year-old child, like, you know, translating for my parents because a lot of the things they wouldn't understand. That's still to come on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Schizophrenia and Psychosis Action Alliance, working to shatter barriers to treatment, survival, and recovery so that people with schizophrenia can thrive. They're one of the few advocacy organizations focused only on schizophrenia and psychosis, and as a result, have a deep understanding of this brain disease. They actively partner with like-minded organizations to conduct research, improve access to resources, and empower individuals with schizophrenia and their families. More at WeCanThrive.org. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about barriers to health care. More than 62 million Latinos are living in the U.S., according to the most recent census data. In California, which is home to a large share of the country's Latino population, almost a fifth of them report that they are not able to speak English well. Language problems can be a barrier to getting medical care, and many Latino immigrant families rely on younger generations for translation and interpretation. Reporter Stephen Rascon has this story of one family trying to navigate the system. Cynthia Hernandez lives in Bell, a city in southeast Los Angeles County, about a 20-minute drive from downtown on a good day. Can I come in? Stop, stop, Lila, stop. Lila. That's her dog, Lila. Cynthia lives in a mobile home community where she grew up with her parents and siblings. She shows me portraits of her parents, Maria de la Paz and Adalberto Hernandez. There's one from the 80s, one of those glamour shots from the mall. They have big smiles and big hair to match the era. Yeah, I know. I love those photos. Maria and Adalberto moved to Los Angeles in the 70s from Mexico. Her mother from Jalisco and her father from Aguascalientes. They met at a factory that made fabric swatches in downtown L.A. Here's how Cynthia describes her mom. Someone that loved to cook. She loved going to the gym, hanging out with her friends in the hot tub, in the jacuzzi, swimming with her friends at the gym. She says her dad kept to himself, a handyman who liked to tinker with old appliances around the house. He'll probably break something on purpose just to build it. At home, they all spoke Spanish, but Cynthia and her siblings grew up speaking English too. So they helped their parents with translation, including on topics as important as healthcare. It's a role Cynthia embraced early on. Kind of eavesdropping, really. Like if my parents would call their health insurance plan, they would have them on speaker. And here I was, like this 
15 year old child like you know translating for my parents because a lot of the things they wouldn't understand so there I was trying to translate whatever I could. She would watch her mom play phone tag with different health plans all the time trying to get someone who spoke Spanish on the line. I know the feeling. My grandmother always had really long phone calls with the insurance companies and she would just have like a pile of papers in front of her going through all of them. And that's really frustrating and I think that's part of the reason why it was really frustrating to navigate the system because here they are not being fluent in English and then playing phone tag with all these different medical groups, insurance companies, and then just navigating insurance. California strengthened pre-existing laws in the 2000s requiring medical providers and health plans to offer language assistance to people who are not fluent in English. This meant if you wanted a medical interpreter, you could get one in theory. But it can take a while to get an interpreter on the line. Sometimes patients don't even know they have the right. And so often, people end up relying on bilingual staff or their family members instead. Cynthia moved to San Francisco for college when she was 21. One summer, Cynthia's mom and her sister Diane took a road trip to visit her. I was really excited to have my mom there because, you know, both of them had never been to my new apartment in San Francisco. But her mom didn't seem the same. I could tell that my mom was acting a little bit different. And also she was more sleepy. She wanted to sleep more. There was something off, but we didn't know what it was. A few months later, Cynthia found out what was going on with her mom. Maria was supposed to take daily blood pressure medication, but... My sister discovered that the medication that my mom thought was her blood pressure medication was actually antidepressants. It turns out the last time Maria went to pick up a refill for her blood pressure medication, she didn't meet with her doctor who spoke Spanish. Instead, Cynthia says her mom spoke with a different person. And that person didn't speak Spanish very well. Estoy aquí para mi medicina para la presión, which translates to I'm here for my refill prescription for high blood pressure. And they just assumed that she said para la depresión, or medication for depression. Cynthia thinks that the clinician misinterpreted la presión, which is Spanish for pressure, for la depresión, which is depression. But my mom didn't know that. My mom thought that she had received the medication that she normally did, which was for her high blood pressure. Cynthia's mom had never had a problem with her prescription before. She was definitely frustrated and just angry at at the clinic, at the healthcare system, because she thought, how can this be? Like, how can you give me the wrong medication? How can you not look at my medical history? How much longer could I have lived like this before something worse happening to me? Once she went back to her clinic to let her doctor know that that doctor gave her the wrong medication, the doctor just immediately takes the prescription drugs and then she tosses them in the trash and then gives my mom the right medication. Because I think that she knew right there and then that she did something wrong and she could have been caught. The law does protect patients in this case. Not offering language services in healthcare settings for patients can be considered discrimination under civil rights law. The Affordable Care Act allows patients to sue their providers or health plan for medical mistakes caused by a language barrier. The state agency tasked with protecting patients' health care rights in California is the Department of Managed Healthcare. It regulates the majority of health plans in the state for more than 28 million people. Mary Watsonabe is the director. 
So my job really is to make sure the plans are following the law and that consumers are getting the care that they need in a timely manner. And particularly with our very diverse population here in California, we want to make sure that everybody has access to services in their language if they need it. A health plan is both a health insurance plan and the insurer that pays for the plan, like Kaiser Permanente or Blue Cross Blue Shield. The department can find health plans like these that don't comply with the law. And in case you're not sure of your health care rights, Mary says they also have a help center phone line for patients to report complaints or to direct them to the correct agency to file their complaint. I asked her how often they get calls through the hotline. I will say that we don't get a tremendous number of complaints to our help center, but healthcare is really complicated. And I do think particularly for those that are non-English speakers, they may just not know that this is something they're entitled to or that we're available to help. Cynthia says this is true for her mother. She didn't know she had a right to an interpreter and that help was available to navigate the complaint process. I do not believe she did, no. Instead of filing a complaint through a process she likely didn't know, Maria's experience changed her own approach to healthcare. She became very vigilant. She and my dad became very vigilant when it came to their health and just really asking questions. Like, whenever they would go in for a procedure, asking the physician to explain everything that they were going to be receiving, whatever services they were going to be receiving. It made them stronger advocates for themselves. One positive development impacting language barriers in Latino communities came in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Local health agencies started using more community health workers to spread COVID information in communities with limited English proficiency. These health workers are also known as promotores de salud, or lay health workers in Spanish-speaking communities. They're able to guide patients through all kinds of healthcare processes, from making appointments to getting treatment. And now federal dollars are expanding funding for these services as part of a broader effort to eliminate health barriers by 2030. I had planned to speak with Cynthia's mother, Maria, for this story. But before I could interview her, I got some terrible news from Cynthia about her parents. They were on their way to Mexico, and they had already crossed the border. And as they were waiting in line, a a big rig ended up crashing into their vehicle and seven other vehicles. And unfortunately, my parents passed away in that accident. This is Maria's last voicemail to Cynthia. Hola. Ya te extraño mucho, también tu niño. I love you. She says, I miss you a lot, and so does your boy, referring to Cynthia's cat. Today, Cynthia works in healthcare, helping communities in the greater Los Angeles area, including her hometown of Bell. She works for the nonprofit health provider Ultimate. They specialize in healthcare for Latino and Spanish speaking families. Cynthia says her biggest goal is letting these families know their support for them. I think that it's frustrating to know that. There's so many services and so much education that's available, yet people don't know about it. I've felt really passionate about coming back to Bell, doing my research on who has less in Bell, who has the worst health outcomes, what type of health is being neglected. It forces me to ask these questions, right, to to kind of see it through a different lens and 
and kind of go back to that child that was helping my parents with like translating all these services because of all the love that I had for my parents, you know, ultimately wanting them to be healthy individuals and wanting them to live long, healthy lives and wanting to have them in my life as long as I could. That story was reported by Stephen Ruscon and edited by Lucy Kang. Medical interpreters are specifically trained to accurately translate important information, but there aren't enough of them, and they also aren't always available when you need them. Computer scientist Nilofar Salehi learned that firsthand when she was just six years old. I was at home with my mom and my little brother, and my little brother was playing and he swallowed a coin. And my mom didn't speak English, so I was the one who had to call um, the hospital, and they sent an ambulance. And when we went to the hospital, I was the one who had to do the translation. She interpreted from English to Farsi and back between her mother and the medical staff. Her brother was fine in the end, but she never forgot that experience. These days, part of her research focuses on improving medical translations utilizing artificial intelligence. She's an assistant professor at the School of Information at the University of California, Berkeley. One aspect she's researched is how much healthcare workers rely on tools like Google Translate. I personally didn't expect it to be that widely used because there are legal requirements for interpreters to be available in most hospital settings. But when we did the research, we were surprised that almost every um, every clinical setting that we looked at across California, people were routinely using Google Translate to communicate with patients who didn't speak English. And I guess, you know, yeah, a, a translator is required to be there. But if you have a situation where somebody is suffering or somebody needs care, I guess you have to use the tools that you have. Exactly. And so that's the calculation that we found physicians and clinicians were making is sometimes you're in a rush, sometimes you don't have um, the ability or the time to reach out to an interpreter. Sometimes a person speaks a dialect in which the interpreter doesn't know. Everybody who has used one of these translation apps knows that they can be hit or miss, sometimes in pretty comical, other times in not so comical ways. So what are we learning about how reliable these tools are, especially in these high stakes situations? Yeah, so that's something that really surprised me was actually how high the error rates are and how much, on the other hand, we tend to overly rely on these tools. So they do well sometimes, especially when they've seen similar types of inputs in their training data. But if they haven't, or it's something that they haven't seen examples of, then they can go really off. And that's really hard for us to understand and to learn how to work with. Because for instance, if you've been using Google Translate on a daily basis to translate between English and Spanish, as a lot of people in California are, you tend to overly rely on the tool because most of the time it's correct. Medical communication is a very, very different type of language. So is, for instance, a legal language. And so when we put in medical information and we expect it to be sort of the same amount of reliable because that's what we're used to, then we get hit with these really big error rates that are also not identifiable. And there's some research that shows this. So um, Elaine Kung, who's one of my collaborators at UCSF Hospital, um, did a study in 2019 where she found that 
8% of sentences, real sentences from emergency room discharge instructions were mistranslated using Google Translate to Chinese in a way that had potential for clinically significant harm. Um, there's another study from 2021 where they found that the numbers were even worse for languages where we have less training data or what is commonly known as low resource languages. Aside from measuring and quantifying the problem, her team is also working on improving outcomes with translation programs for healthcare workers. One way is for doctors to write instructions step by step so they can be translated more accurately. So one thing that tends to happen a lot when, especially when physicians are in a rush and they're trying to write these notes, is they tend to say multiple things in one sentence. So for instance, you were admitted, we saw you had a high fever, and we gave you this medication. And that really, really throws off the translation models. Um, so one very simple thing that improves this is suggesting to them to break down that sentence into three separate sentences. So a, a simple sentence like, you were admitted for a high fever is much easier for the model to translate than that complicated sentence that had three different things in it. Another is when there are multiple medications in the same sentence, that's really hard. They are also working on a new tool that provides a translation along with an estimate of how likely it is to be accurate. Nilofar Salehi is an assistant professor at the School of Information at the University of California, Berkeley. Coming up, one woman's battle to get her insurance to cover a new wheelchair. I can't understand why you would deny me my way I get around. You're denying me my legs. That's next on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about barriers to medical care. 
Most of us have dealt with health insurance headaches, out-of-network doctors, complicated rules about what is covered and what isn't, and then getting those surprise bills. Now, imagine being enrolled in two insurance programs with two ID cards, two sets of rules. That's the reality facing some of the poorest and sickest people in the U.S. who are enrolled in both Medicare and Medicaid. And often having two insurance policies is not better than just having one. The podcast Tradeoffs recently reported on this issue and a family fighting through a labyrinth of difficult rules. So I'm Salima. I'm 33. I live in the Bronx. And what is your condition, situation? I'm Spina Bifida. I'm Rochelle Render. I'm 50 years old. I'm the mom of Salima. Yeah, I'm a supporter of her endeavors and her aspirations. Spina Bifida affects Salima's spinal cord and the use of her legs. She uses a wheelchair to get around. And the wheelchair became the center of a long battle. Here's Tradeoff's host, Dan Gorenstein. Salima Render Hornsby is one of the 12.5 million people in America who must navigate both of the country's biggest health insurance programs, Medicare and Medicaid, to get the care they need. People end up in this position because they're low income and either disabled or over 65. Some people are all three. You might think these two programs would work together to give this vulnerable population, about half of whom are people of color, more help, better benefits. But that's just not the reality. Instead, Medicare and Medicaid often clash and trap people with few resources in a maze of rules. We are very strong people for having to deal with this. Anybody that gets through this process is blessed because it's a lot. Each program's a behemoth in its own right. Medicare, the program for older adults and people with disabilities, tends to kick in first, picks up the more urgent medical stuff, surgeries, hospital visits, while Medicaid, the program for people with low incomes, brings up the rear, covers the other more long-term things, like regular help at home, a long stay in a nursing facility. But who covers what gets complicated fast, and it's easy for patients like Salima to get exasperated. Why do I have to keep repeating myself, saying, I need this, I need this, until I'm blue in the face? Salima and Rochelle's latest journey into this bureaucratic jungle is their most important yet, because it's key to achieving a dream both women share, Salima getting her own place. She's 33 and she's not out there running with the wolves yet. I need her to go running. All right, because this old fox herself need to do some other things. Rochelle likes to joke, but she also knows what independence means to her daughter. Like every young adult, Salima wants to find her people, her place in the world. She works hard takes classes, is making plans for a career as a cosmetologist, one who specializes in caring for people with skin sensitivities like she has. But she needs her health insurance to do its part and approve her request for a new wheelchair. For about seven years, Salima has had this hulking motorized chair. And what do I call it? You do name it. Oh, I called it a car. What was it? Mercedes? Oh. Mom, no, the Maserati, it was Cadillac. Cadillac. The Cadillac. 
a fitting name for a chair that costs $20,000, and it's the kind of big boat someone a lot older and more frail than Salima should be driving. It makes her self-conscious. A more compact chair would make my um, self-esteem better. Despite its shortcomings, Salima says she could count on the Cadillac to get her where she needed to go until the summer of 2019. I was on my way to an appointment, and the chair stopped in the middle of the road. Imagine the scene. Cars, taxis, speeding by. The Cadillac busted. I could not move, and there was nobody to um, help me. was terrifying, but Salima made do during the pandemic. But by early 2022, she needed something new. There you go, a little fine tuning. Salima and her mom came here. Perfect. I'm going to do one more and make a couple of your middle straps even a little tighter. Welcome to Jiffy Lube at ICS. Jean Minkle is Senior Vice President of Rehab and Mobility Services at ICS, or Independence Care System. And how does that feel? That feels great. The nonprofit helps keep many people with disabilities in New York City living the lives they want. If you can't get out your door, there are these very, very profound interruptions And that affects people on a daily basis. Jean's team helped Salima test new chairs, talked about what she'd need to live life without Rochelle around. Together, they landed on a much lighter, more nimble chair that Salima could push herself with a kind of booster wheel on the back if she needed a rest or some extra oomph. Salima could start to taste her new freedom. With that chair, I can get a job. I could travel. I could be myself, and experience life. Jean's team was quick to warn Salima, this could take some time. I have on occasion said to somebody, welcome to conception. In nine months, if things go well, your baby will be available for delivery. This was not Salima and Rochelle's first health insurance rodeo. They crossed every T dotted every I, spent weeks going to appointments across the city. In late June, five months after visiting ICS to test drive different chairs, the first letter arrived. It was from Medicare. I was a little bit in shock because I I can't understand why you would deny me my way I get around. So you're telling me, you're denying me my legs? The chair request was flat out rejected. I felt like they were taking away my liberty to move. Jean Minkle at ICS basically expected this first denial. It wasn't her first rodeo either. In fact, she was glad to get the denial over with. See, what Jean knew that Salima was just learning was that Medicare only pays for equipment that people need to get around inside their homes, not outside. Medicaid, on the other hand, does cover a person's outside-the-home mobility needs, including a chair tough enough to traverse New York City streets. But Medicaid's rules also say Salima's team has to try billing Medicare first, even when there's virtually zero chance Medicare will cover the thing. Sure, it sounds like the plot to a Kafka story, but Jean says this is just another example of how these two programs combine to make life harder for the duly eligible. 
that puts a big burden of responsibility on people that don't have the luxury of understanding the bureaucracies, number one, and don't have a lot of time given that everything in their lives takes more time. About one in three duly eligible people have a serious mental illness. Almost half live alone or in an institution, and nearly nine out of 10 live on less than $20,000 a year. Jean says very often the first denial is the end of the story for most duels. In Salima's case, Jean assigned a full-time employee to chase down the necessary paperwork. They immediately sent that first denial off to Medicaid to prove to them that Medicare wasn't going to pick up the bill and it was time for Medicaid to step in. But just a few weeks later, the insurance company that manages Salima's Medicaid came back with a big N-O. Request denied. The team at ICS vowed to keep fighting, but the delays have taken their toll on Salima. With Salima's Cadillac breaking down, she's been stuck in an inadequate backup chair that Rochelle bought off of Amazon for $1,000. It gets me from point A to point B, but it also gives me problems. Pressure ulcers, backaches. The rejections by both of her insurers have left Salima in pain. For example, suffering through rides in city transit vans. Every single bump, it feels like your nerves are like smushed together. So everything is just out of whack by the time I get home. Living like this has forced Salima to keep asking. Is this trip outside my house worth the hurt? Will my chair break down? That was an excerpt from the podcast Trade-Offs, and host Dan Gorenstein is here now to talk about what could help people like Salima. So, Dan, lawmakers in Washington are looking at this Byzantine system. Are there any solutions in the works? Well, uh, this is really complicated for a variety of reasons, uh, as I'm sure you would expect. Here's a big one. The federal government can only do so much. Mike, in one of the two big programs here, Medicaid is in reality mostly run by states and territories, and they set a lot of the rules, who's eligible for what, and also, of course, pay a big chunk of the bills. So in other words, there's really not one situation for lawmakers to fix in Washington. There are more like 50 different ones. Hmm. So are there any ideas out there that could help tackle some of the issues that we heard about in the story? Sure, there are some ideas. There are even some models out there. For example, something called an integrated care plan. Now, that's a single insurance plan managing all of a person's care. They've been around for a while, but don't get much traction. Only about one in 10 duels are in a truly integrated plan. And on paper, this sounds like a simple fix, but People obviously are not flocking to these plans, Mike, and and for a bunch of technical reasons, getting money to flow from Medicare and Medicaid into one of these plans is crazy complicated. Would an integrated plan have made Salima's situation better, simpler? Totally. If Salima was in one of these integrated care plans and the plan agreed that getting her a new wheelchair is good for her health, they could have just paid for it. Is there any political momentum on this issue, given how complicated it is? So there are a handful of bipartisan bills that have moved in this direction of sort of addressing this problem. 
dating back to 2022. And there's one floating around the Senate right now that is led by Republican Bill Cassidy from Louisiana and supported by Dems like Tim Warner and Tom Carper. The Biden administration has also been chipping away. Perhaps the most important thing that they've done is that they're pushing states to offer more integrated plan options. Okay. Have you gotten an update from Salima in terms of her wheelchair? Salima found out about a year and a half after first starting the process of getting a new wheelchair that her Medicaid insurer was going to approve the request. I jumped. I I got really happy. And we heard earlier this fall that the chair actually arrived in October. Last we heard, Salima had some big plans. I'm going to Vegas. (laughs) A little bit of gambling, a little bit of sightseeing. I want to go see the Hoover Dam and the Grand Canyon. Thank you, Dan. Thanks so much, Mike, and I always enjoy being here on your show. Dan Gorenstein is the host of the podcast Tradeoffs. We'll post a link to the whole episode on our website. Tradeoffs senior producer Leslie Walker contributed reporting to the piece we heard. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. This week marks the 10th anniversary of The Pulse. We started the show in December of 2013 as a local health and science program. And since then, we've grown and expanded. We can now be heard on over 100 stations across the country. And we're going to add some more stations in the next year. Our health and science reporters are Alan Hume, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral Health Reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's Health and Science Reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort, journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR. In this country... Some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, 
we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.